0: Not because last week's message was Jesus' greatest hits. It's more like this is another text this week that I would rather avoid. Did you guys listen as um, Brandon read the text from Luke this morning? That's one of those ones that, being honest with you, I really wish Jesus didn't say. Like when I listen to it, I'm like, Jesus, we could have done without that one. That one was pretty difficult, that one's challenging. Now, this text, when Jesus originally said these words, they were incredibly difficult for the original hearers to hear, and no, they shouldn't be any less difficult for us, okay? So I want you to brace yourself with me and listen to what Jesus is saying in Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. It says, Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. When once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then in reply, he will say to you, I do not know where you will come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evil doers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrown out. Then people will come from the east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Lord, this is a toughie. This kind of a text can make us feel very arrogant and prideful and spiritually prideful, like we're the ones that are in and look out at the rest of the world and judge them as if they are all out and we are all in. Or this text can make us fearful, like like maybe we're not in that you are angry and judging us and wanting to lock us out. This text can make us angry because our world would like to believe that everybody gets in and that everybody is okay. And it doesn't matter what anybody believes or does. That doesn't matter that you love us all and everybody makes it. And in this text, it doesn't seem so. It seems that some people will be out. It can make us want to check out and go, well, who really knows anything for sure? I hope this works out. So many different kinds of reactions we can have to this text. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear how your spirit would want us to understand this in this moment, in this time, in our lives. Help me, Lord, as I speak on this text and speak to it. May you cause your voice to be heard in this place this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The mother of all questions, right? The mother of all questions. Jesus has been teaching and he's on his way to Jerusalem now. You you all know, I mean, this is spoiler alert, right? It's not going to work out well for Jesus in Jerusalem initially. He's going to get nailed to a cross. And I know, like, today a cross is like a piece of jewelry for a lot of us. We know better that a cross is something, uh, it's an instrument of execution, but it's brutality. Like the Mel Gibson film, right, The Passion of the Christ, which probably most of you have seen, does a decent job of showing the brutality, the physical brutality of the cross. But what it doesn't begin to show is the humiliation of the cross. That the cross was not just an instrument of brutality and execution, but of utter shame and humiliation publicly being displayed as shamed and damned and condemned, publicly ridiculed in ways that I honestly can't talk about here this morning because it really is that uncomfortable. We know it's not going to work out so well for Jesus, but Jesus is willingly on his way to Jerusalem, and he's teaching through all these towns and villages. And then somewhere along the way, this guy comes up, or this lady comes up, and says, are only a few going to be saved, or are only a few being saved, Lord? Now, there might be a couple reasons for that question. One, maybe this person is really kind of bewildered, like they're disappointed They're disappointed in the results of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is going around. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching to these big crowds. And then he's facing ongoing opposition. The more Jesus goes on his mission, the more the people who are in charge, the leaders of the people, oppose him and reject him. And now there are people actively trying to conspire against him and kill him. The people that these, the people in your in this community that would have always been viewed as spiritual, now are lining up in their voice against Jesus. And so this person might have been looking around, going, "What's happening, Lord? Are only a few people going to be saved? Because out of all these thousands of people Jesus is talking to, only a few." are really committing to be followers maybe that's part of it but maybe there's something else going on people in Jesus's day just like today are very very were very curious about how the end times are going to happen what will the end of the world look like now they might have thought of it a little different than we do they were looking for the end of the world as god's judgment coming on the on the unrighteousness of the world, the brokenness, the wickedness, the violence, the brutality, the greed. They would have looked for God to come and judge and liberate people and bring the fullness of his kingdom as a new world. That's that's more what they had in mind, but they were curious. And so, so teachers and leaders of the day debated on matters of the end times, just like they do today. Just like they do today. In case, you know, you're probably going to run across this sometime. Within conservative evangelicals' circles, there's a view called premillennialism, which means that certain people think that Jesus is going to literally return to earth and then he's going to literally reign on earth 1,000 years. And then within people that believe the end times are going to happen that way, they have three different views that are kind of prevalent. One is that Jesus will return when everything seems to be pretty good. And then once he returns, he's going to, well, he's going to kind of return. He's going to come kind of halfway between heaven and earth. And then the the righteous people are going to be raptured. They're going to go up to meet him. And then they're going to hang out for seven years and chill and kind of watch things unfold as things go bad from bad to worse on earth. And then after about seven years, he's going to come and Everybody's going to come out of heaven and swinging swords and going to put the smack down. It's going to be a big judgment. The second way is that, that in this seven years of tribulation, somewhere in the middle, Jesus is going to come. And then a third view is that Jesus is going to come after the tribulation. And then there's going to be the rapture and the resurrection and there's going to be this millennial reign of Jesus. Other Christians believe that the church, that Jesus is reigning through the church, and that the church is going to succeed. And that Christ is reigning right now, and then when the end comes, it's going to wrap this all up, and there's going to be kind of a new heaven and a new earth. I'm really simplifying this stuff. Other people view the millennial reign of Christ as just purely symbolic. There is no real millennial reign, it's just symbolism. So even today, among conservative evangelicals, and I'm just talking about conservative evangelicals, there's so many different views about the end. That's how it was in Jesus' day, too. Different people viewed how it was going to end differently. And one of the questions that was debated is, how many people are going to be saved? How many people are going to make it into the kingdom of God? And so rabbis would have to weigh in on this, you know? are they? Do they view that all these people are going to be saved? Or do they view just a few people are going to be saved? And then some would even debate the exact number, how many, the exact number, what is the exact number of the elect of God that are going to be saved? And so here's Jesus and he's teaching and someone comes up to him with the question that would have been put to any rabbi or teacher, you know, theoretically, Lord, tell us, tell us how many people are going to be saved? Are only a few being saved? Where do you weigh in on all this? You want to learn a fancy word? Lord, what is your eschatology? Eschatology is kind of like the study of last things. Study of how? Eschatology. And when you want to talk about things, you can talk about your eschatological view. Mm-hmm. Right? Eschatology comes from eschatos, last. Right? So, here's Jesus, teaching in all these villages preaching what he, what he knows to be the most important things in the world, and someone comes up to him and says, Lord, tell us about your eschatology. What's your view of the end? How many are going to be saved? Now, don't you want to know that? Doesn't that seem like a question you would like to know? I would like to know. I would like to know exactly how it's all going to end and exactly what to expect. Can I confess something to you? I don't know. I really don't know, and whenever you come across somebody who says they absolutely know, I would really encourage you to be very careful, okay? Because throughout your lifetime as a Christian, you're going to come across people that are going to come and give you end-time seminars in church, and I would say always take those with a grain of salt. All right? I'm not trying to sow seeds of discord and doubt. I'm just trying to help you out. But some people get locked into stuff that just makes them wacko. Oops. See? Thank you, Lord. It's an amen from heaven, in case you didn't hear it. All right? That's so blasphemous. Sorry, Lord. Um, Now, here's the funny thing about Jesus in this text. He doesn't answer the guy's question. Did you notice that? He's like, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And this is what Jesus says. He says, he looks at him and says, strive to enter the narrow gate because many are going to seek or desire to enter into the kingdom of God but will not be able to. Wait, what? So this one person comes and says, Lord, tell us. Are only a few being saved? And Jesus turns to the crowd. Listen, the crowds that are there to listen to him. Possibly crowds that are following Jesus. These aren't people that are out there These are people that are there with Jesus, like us. These aren't like people outside the church, way out there. These are people like in the church, in here. In fact, if you look, the guy starts his question using the word Lord. Now, that's also a term of respect, kind of like sir. But it does show that they hold Jesus in some kind of revered position. And Jesus turns to the crowd and answers all of them and says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many. Many will seek or try or desire, but will not be able to. What Jesus said to him was shocking. And it should shock us today. Listen, here's a big idea. Proof of salvation, proof of our salvation is not just in talking, in hoping, in remembering, or in relating. Proof of salvation is in striving. Proof of salvation is not just in talking, hoping, remembering, or relating. Proof of salvation is in striving. Before I take a look at those quickly this morning, let me make two notes that you need to know. One, the word strive is important here. Would you like to know the Greek word or not? Yes? No? Okay, for those of you guys who don't want to listen to it, don't. He uses the word agoniz, agonizesta. Agonizesta. Do you recognize any other kind of word in there? Agonizesta. Agony. It is the word from which we derive our word agony. This word... In that context in that world was regularly used for the kind of striving and training that it took for a person to get a religious pro, I mean a, um, an athletic prize, like the kind of effort that's put forward by an Olympian as they strive to get the gold medal. That's the word that Jesus is using here. And he, he uses it as a present, as a present tense command, an imperative. In other words, he looks at the crowd and says to them, ignoring the guy's question, basically, you guys always continually be striving like an athlete trying to get an athletic prize to enter the kingdom of God. This is not like, um, this is not a casual kind of word. It's not about laying back in your spiritual security whatsoever. It's about vigorous training and straining towards something, but continuously striving. The second thing to note is that Jesus is not saying striving is about earning your salvation. He's not talking about striving as in this is how you earn your salvation. Striving is proof of your salvation. Striving is proof that you are being saved it is not what earns your salvation kind of like playing hard on the field on a Sunday afternoon doesn't earn somebody's way necessarily into the NFL it's proof that they are in the NFL think about it when you go to an NFL game or you turn on a football game for those of you guys who watch you expect the guys on the field to give a hundred percent you want to see hard hits you want to see people running it out you want to see the best of the best do what no, what few other people on this planet can do. You expect the best out of them. And they put it forward. Most of the time, a lot of those guys get out there and they do some stuff that blows their mind. Like Troy Polamalu, when he steps on the field for the Steelers, and obviously you know my fan. He is not out there to prove or earn his way onto the Steelers. He plays hard like that because he is a Pittsburgh Steeler. Sorry, I just I would I would bring up somebody who's a bear, but I can't think of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Do they? Oh, we'll we'll get together for that one. That's Steeler champ. Uh, okay, it's not about earning, but it is proof of. Let me take a look at what i what this big idea is. Proof of salvation is not just talking, hoping, remembering, or relating. Proof of salvation is is found in striving. Let's take a look at the first one. Proof of salvation is not just in talking; it's in striving. Think about it. Here's a guy who wants to talk to Jesus about an important theological question, perhaps, and Jesus, for all intents and purposes, ignores it. What is that about? The guy says, "Are only a few being saved?" And Jesus' answer is. You strive. What? It seems that Jesus doesn't allow the important question of who is being saved to remain at the level of intellectual Q&A. It's not just about what we think. There's many of us that hide ourselves in our thoughts we have a theological system in our head and we think we know what's going on and we hide underneath that. We hide. We try to find in our thoughts and in our creeds proof that we are in the kingdom or we're going to make it. And Jesus seems to be saying that salvation is more than your answers to theological questions. Salvation is also proved in your actions. It's not just proved because you can answer correctly on a theological quiz. It's proved by action. I think about today the, the kind of theological debates we get into. You know, Roman or Eastern Orthodox versus Roman Catholic. Or Roman Catholics versus Protestants. Or even in Protestant circles, Calvinists versus Arminian. If you don't know what these are, Google it. It would be good for you to know and be familiar with these kinds of debates. I heard a comedian say on Friday night, he said, he, I don't know, he's probably not right on his statistics, but he said, there's 50,000 religions in the world. He said, there's a good chance some are going to be wrong. I agree with him. But his solution was, so who cares? What can we really know anyways? A A lot of people do that. We look and go, well, we can't know these things for sure. And so practically, when it comes to our faith in Christ, we give up. Practically, we live like atheists. If you were to take a look at the lifestyle of a good moral atheist and take the lifestyle of one of these kinds of Christians and put them side by side, you couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't look at one and see that they're, that they're living any different than the other. I think practical atheism is all over in the the church. Practical atheism. But Jesus goes on, salvation is not, proof of salvation is not just in what we say or talk or think, it's in striving. He also says proof of salvation is not just in hoping or seeking or desiring, it's in striving. Jesus says, indeed, listen, I'm telling you, many people will try to seek. Another way to translate that, the word here is desire to enter the kingdom, what will not be able to. Think about it. Jesus is contrasting striving with seeking or desiring. What's, he, what's the contrast here? Well, first of all, he's saying to the crowd, you presently, continuously seek and you presently, continuously strive. He says, but the people that won't make it, they will desire. They will want to be in, but won't be able. He seems to be saying many people will desire to be in the kingdom of God. But it's not something that really impacts their lives right now. It doesn't make an effect on what they do right now. It's just not a real priority in their lives. No matter what they say, it's not really something that drives or motivates their lives at this present time. And Jesus seems to be saying that salvation is a priority for those who will enter, a real priority. The kingdom of God has become something that is causing them to strive, not because they're trying to earn their salvation, but because the whole way they view reality is being transformed so that they know they can't live the same way that they always have, that things have changed. All things are becoming and have become new. It's like Chris Chick back there. Think about Chris Chick. If you know anything about Chris Chick, you know one thing. She's on a mission to adopt a child. You don't have to have, don't have to say two, hear two sentences from her to find that out, right? Now, most people in this room have heard her talk about that. If you haven't been to Bunko Night last Friday or bought one of her crocheted or knitted or whatever you're doing there, um, is that crocheting or knitting? I get them confused. Both. Both. I saw she crocheted Nick a pair of like crocheted Converse slippers and baby hats and scarves. She's having yard sales and doing this and that and this and that. You know what? There is a woman that is not just wishing or desiring to become a parent. She is striving for it. That is striving. That's what striving looks like. Now, Julie and I, you look at our lives, you know, and we've been married 14 years. Now, we might desire to be parents, you know, not to give you TMI, but we haven't been preventing anything for a long time, if that makes sense. And the other side of the equation is we're all good in that department, (laughs) right? Not that you wanted to know that. But it's funny, you'd be married a little while, and people are like, when are you going to have kids? And then when it doesn't happen, they're like, oh, well, you must hate kids. You're an idiot. (laughs) I'm dead serious. I mean, people make that jump. They're like, oh, you don't have kids. Well, you must hate kids. Like, you're just so dumb. Has anybody else heard anybody like that? Thank you. Right? I'm like, that doesn't have anything to do with that. (laughs) Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Now, Julie and I, part of us might desire someday maybe to have children. But we have other stuff going on in our lives right now that honestly is the biggest priority. I'm being honest with you. We, in no sense of the word, are striving to become parents. But if you talk to Christian and if you just read what she's gone through, she's been to this doctor and that doctor and gone through this procedure and that procedure, checking this and that, doing this test and that, and she's struggled through what it means to wrestle with the fact that she wants to become a parent. She works with kids and has worked with kids for years and still wants to become a parent. (laughs) But there she is, week in, week out, knitting stuff and planning stuff. That's striving. That's what striving really looks like. Julie and I are just desiring or seeking. If you were to bet on which one of the two of us couples, that Steve there, Steve-O and Chris, or Steve and Julie, which ones are going to become parents, I would put my money on them. What is the proof of them becoming parents? Look at the striving. Does that make sense? The, uh, The analogy doesn't hold perfectly to the text, but I want you to get a vision of what striving looks like. In our spiritual lives, so many of us, it seems even in the church, we hope or desire maybe someday that we'll get in. But that hope and desire hasn't affected our lives to the point where we're striving after God. And Jesus says that salvation isn't just a matter of hoping or desiring someday it works out. Well, everything else in your life is a freaking priority. Sorry to say freaking in church. He's saying somehow it's a matter of striving in the present. He's not saying that's what earns it. He's saying if you want to know if you're going to get get there, ask yourself, are you striving? He goes on, proof of salvation is not just in remembering, it's in striving. Jesus paints this vivid picture of a master closing the door and a bunch of people who've arrived late, standing outside, feverishly knocking, saying, Lord, let us in. And they're shocked when the Lord looks and says, I don't know you, where you came from. And they're like, Lord, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. Hello? Now, you would have thought that that would work. But the Lord says, I don't know you or where you come from. Go away. And then, as if, to add insult to injury, Get away from me, all you evildoers. I can imagine the people standing outside knocking going, evildoer? I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have saw themselves as evildoers. I mean, they had the gall to be up there knocking on the door like, hey, sorry I'm late. What are you going to do? Traffic. (laughs) They seem to think that they belong in. They seem to think that that's where they're supposed to be. And, And the Lord's like, I don't know you. It calls them evildoers. I can imagine the shock. And they're like, but we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. Jesus seems to be indicating that many people will point to their past religious experiences as proof of their salvation. But if those religious experiences haven't made them strive in their relationship with God, Maybe they're not worth anything. Those, if those religious experiences didn't cause them to strive to enter the fullness of the kingdom of God, maybe they're worthless. At least on that day, they're worthless. Think about that. Baptism. Communion. Every time we come to the communion, every one of us could say, Lord, we ate and drank with you. We listened to you teach in our streets. But if somehow the eating and drinking and listening to the teachings didn't make something transform in our heart so that, so that the kingdom of God has become a priority, so like Chris Chick, we strive, maybe that's something we ought to look at. It's like the proof, like like if you were to ask Julie, Julie and I if our marriage is going to make it till one of us dies, until <laughs> you know, death do us part or Jesus comes back, right? I can't go, hey, you want to know if Julie and I are going to make it? Here's your proof. Here's all you need to know. Here's my ring. When I got married, she put this on my finger 14 years ago. I weighed a lot less, and I cannot possibly get it off right now. I cannot take this thing off at all. It is seriously stuck on my finger. Look, look, you can see my finger has grown around my ring. <laughs> right? That is a true story. I could not remove this if I wanted to. Now, here's the question Is this proof that Julie and I are going to make it? Now what is it? Like, close to half of all marriages fail. Is this proof that Julie and I are going to make it? No. If you, the only proof you can have that Julie and I are going to make it is if you look at our lives and answer the question, are we striving in our relationship to make this work? Presently, actively, continually. Amen? From married people. That's the only guarantee. That's the only proof. And I'm not saying it's an absolute proof, but it's the best one you're going to get. The question is, are we striving now? Are we straining now? I can't look and go, I remember that day 14 years ago when we set our vows in front of the church and she put this on my finger. That's the proof that we're going to make it, see? That's a wedding. What we have now is a marriage. The proof of us making it is in our striving. It's not in our remembering. Memories are nice. They're not bad. But the proof's in what's happening now. Are we striving? Did that 14 years ago contribute to us striving in our relationship in the present to make this work. And Julie and I get into fights. We try not to fight in front of other people, but we do have our moments. And you might think, I mean, if you're not married in here, you're thinking, but when I get married, we're not going to have any moments. You're going to have some moments. You will have some moments, I promise moments on top of the moments. <laughs> stuff where you start fighting about stuff you were fight stuff in the fight. Like you're fighting about one thing. It's like seriously, you leave a peanut butter on the counter? Yes. But I don't like how you ask me about it all the time. <laughs> Layer 2 of the fight. Why are you getting a tone with tone with me? Layer 3 of the fight. And now you got to fight through several layers before you finally go to bed. And some nights you just one of the best one of the best things about being in a good relationship over a long period of time is You can just go, ah, I'm going to go watch football. (laughs) You'll be there when it's over. (laughs) I'm not saying in a bad way. I'm saying you can walk away and know that sometimes people just need to cool down. And after a little bit of time, you can come back together and go, ah, I'm sorry, baby. I was being an idiot. And she's like, yeah, you were. And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Are we going to make it? Are we striving? i got to rush. I'm going over time, guys. The last one. Proof of salvation is not just in relating. It's in striving. Not just in relating. It's in striving. Jesus says, this is this is shocking to Jesus' hearers." He says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Jesus is pointing out that many people find their confidence in their religious heritage. But salvation is more, proof of salvation is more in personal striving. My religious heritage, I was baptized a long time ago. Part of my religious heritage. I have some godly grandparents. Come from a family that at least two generations ago was very Christian. We can look at our families that raised us, raised us in church like these people would have and thought, I'm a descendant of, they, these people thought, I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a covenant with them. That automatically makes me in. And Jesus is saying, absolutely not. It don't matter who your grandma was. It don't matter how much she prayed for you. It doesn't matter how much your dad or your mom prays for you. It doesn't matter how much your pastor prays for you. It doesn't matter which church you've belonged to all your life, what church you were born into, what label was stuck on you when you came into this world, or what label you got when you were in Sunday school or when you were in youth group. All that stuff doesn't matter unless somehow it has caused something where God has worked in your life that has transformed you in such a way that now you're moving towards striving. It's not proof of salvation, or it's not, it's not earning salvation, but it is proof that it's happening. Jesus goes on from here to tell, them, tell these Jewish people that not only does their relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not count in the grand scheme of things, but that God is going to welcome in the Gentiles. This was mind-blowing to them. That God was going to reach out to the north, south, east, and west and get people that are far away from him and bring them into the kingdom. And in Jesus' whole story, the ones who are in jeopardy of being left out are the ones who are asking the questions. The crowds that are close to him. The guy that asked, tell us, Lord, are only a few being saved? Jesus' answer almost comes down like, it's really not something you need to worry about, but you. Strive to enter the narrow gate. Many will desire to, but won't be able. Many will desire, but won't be able. Proof of salvation is not just in talking. It's not just in hoping. It's not just in remembering or relating. Proof of salvation is in striving. conclude with this as your faith is your faith causing you to strive now is your faith more than talk or thoughts and ideas is it more than just hope in the future it's going to work out or memories of religious experiences from the past or relationships with godly people that you feel you're connected to faith may cause agony in the present life as we strain to live in the age to come and still be here now. But Jesus seems to be saying the agony of faith is far better than the agony that comes with finding you thought you were in and end up being out. That agony is where you find weeping and gnashing of teeth. He seems to be saying, like a player, after the Super Bowl, hoisting a Super Bowl trophy. After all the camps and training is over, after all the games have been played, after everything's been left on the field, after the blood and the bruises. Somehow like that, when we come into the fullness of the kingdom of God, we'll look back and say, it was all Worth it. All the straining was worth it. So we find ourselves reclining at a great table in the fullness of the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, and all those who have strived because God has laid hold of their lives in this world. From the north, south, east, and west. So how will it all end? Don't know. But you and I strive now to enter. Many will desire to be in, but will not be able to stand.